You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is Julian with Rich and Regular. Hey, this is Whitney Hansen from the Money Nerds podcast. This is Joe Salcihai from Money with Friends podcast. This is Bobby Rebell from the Money with Friends podcast, and you are listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson. And this is Doc G. So, Paul Thompson, what's up next? Well, hey, Doc, we have a panel of four today who have all gone through an interesting reinvention of their lives. And we want to explore the question of how do we invent ourselves to begin with and then reinvent ourselves after we mature through our stages of life. So we'll start with a conversation by jumping into the context of who these folks are by giving a quick introduction. My name is Julian Saunders. I am one half of Rich and Regular, dialing in from Atlanta, Georgia. My name is Whitney Hansen. I am host of the Money Nerds podcast and a financial coach. I live in Boise, Idaho. A lot of people don't know that, but that's where I reside, home of the potatoes. I'm Joe Salcihai with the Money with Friends podcast and also Stacking Benjamins, which I make both of those for my mom's half-finished basement outside Detroit. I am host with Joe Salcihai of the Money with Friends podcast. I also have the Financial Grown-Up podcast, and I am coming to you from my kitchen in New York City. So Joe, I'd like to start with you. Before you were a podcaster and a TV and radio personality, you were a certified financial planner. How did you get into that line of work in the first place? I was actually working at a water treatment company. I was a creative writing major. So all that says big time financial planner right? Coming. <laughs> but I had a friend. I, I definitely have an engineer personality, but I grew up in a really small town. I just thought engineers were people that drove trains. And I was working one day and a friend of mine who worked with a big company in the financial services industry called and said, quote, we normally don't hire people like you, but I think you'd be really good at this. Now, big companies in personal finance, a lot of people don't know this, you know, a lot of the Wall Street firms, the wirehouses, these guys, they just go through tons of people. And so I joined that herd of people, but it turned out he was right. I really enjoyed it. And my engineering personality kind of took over. I think one thing that made me different than a lot of financial advisors was because I didn't have a finance background to start with, I kind of talked like a regular guy, not like somebody with a finance MBA. Not that that's wrong, like that's fantastic, but I could kind of bridge the gap between my client and the world of Wall Street. Bobby, you didn't start in finance either. Describe your first job in the TV news industry. 
My first job was at CNBC, although you could also count my many unpaid internships for people that know anything about the media business. And the reason I went into business news is because I wanted to be a journalist and my dad was a Wall Street guy. And in order for him to literally support me financially, because as I mentioned, these internships were all unpaid, the compromise that we made was that I would go into business news because then when I learned about it, I would naturally do the right thing and go to work on Wall Street. And he's still waiting, by the way. Recently, I I only became a CFP in 2017 after my book, How to Be a Financial Grown-Up, came out and I wanted to know more about personal finance. Most of my business news was actually doing a lot of earnings coverage and Fed coverage and macroeconomics and international trade, current events type stuff. I didn't know much about personal finance, so I got a CFP and my dad's reaction was, okay, so now are you getting a real job? And he, he wanted me to go work on Wall Street. This is even in 2017. So we're still working on that, but I did have a great career and continue to in financial news, just different ways. And I love now doing it on a more personal level with podcasting, especially with Joe, where we talk to real people and talk about things that really matter to people. So I enjoy it a lot. And Bobby, did you love that first job at CNBC? I loved it so much. You know, it's interesting because it was the first time I had a real sort of a grown-up paycheck that wasn't just a part-time job. And it felt like so much money, the first paycheck I got in this real post-college job that was full-time. And I loved everything I was doing. I was Xeroxing scripts. People may not know that, but there were scripts you had to copy for the anchors and running all the numbers so the graphics were updated. It was a lot of sort of drudge work, but I loved it. I loved being around the excitement of TV and I loved learning about Wall Street and stocks and how everything worked. It was fascinating and it was a great environment, CNBC, back in the day. So Julian, let me channel your childhood a little bit here. Mom and dad are sitting at the kitchen table with you and they say, so son, what do you want to go into when you get older? And you say, why, of course, hospitality, right? So how did you uh, come across hospitality? And is that what you thought you were going to be doing coming out of college? That is actually what I thought I was going to do coming out of college. Um, my family, the vast majority of them all from the beautiful island of Jamaica. And so obviously tourism uh, is a huge impact on that. My father worked for a hotel company for pretty much his entire career. My mother bounced around, but spent about 20 years working for a hotel company. And so uh, all of those things from restaurants and hotels was really in my blood. And so two weeks after graduating high school, uh, I started culinary school because I wanted to be a chef. And uh, one, because again, I was somewhat familiar with it given my background, but also I thought it was a great way to get girls. And <laughs> it was. But <laughs> it wasn't a really, really great lifestyle. And so since then, I've kind of walked away from that and transitioned quite a few times uh, into what I'm doing now. And Whitney, you left college with an accounting degree and you were an accountant for a few years. Is that right? Yeah, I was in a public accounting for almost two years. And before that, I was a nail technician. So I did manicures and pedicures all through college. And no, it was not for me, though. I knew that from my third year of college, but I was too far into that degree that I was committed to that. And so, yeah, public accounting for two years doing taxes and external auditing. So let's talk about this idea that it was not for you. So you knew in college that maybe this wasn't the right career path, but you ended up working for a few years in accounting. What changed in those few years? Over those few years that I was working in public accounting, one of the things that I started to realize was as an accountant, specifically doing taxes, you are very isolated. You occasionally get that one call where you're telling them, hey, this is how much money you owe or this is your refund. But it was incredibly boring work for me personally. It was very tedious. I've since learned I'm not a detail person. I don't love that. I like the bigger picture. I like the creative process. And so I knew that because every single time I went to work, I had this little pit in my stomach where I knew it wasn't for me. That voice inside my head was telling me this is not the right career, but I was so 
afraid of taking a leap and, and reinventing myself that I just kept trudging through. But eventually I gave into that. Joe, let's talk about that career path a little bit. You were a financial planner for a number of years, but was there the sinking feeling that maybe this wasn't the right thing for you at some point? I had a mentor when I turned 40 who gave two weeks notice at a big company. And if you know about the financial services industry, you don't give two weeks notice. You leave at midnight with the client files. And then it's like a Jerry Maguire movie where everybody's calling the clients trying to get them to come with you. So it was really surprising. And he said, you know, I like financial planning. I don't love it. I'm at a young age. I've done a good job of saving. I've done a young age and I've been fortunate enough that I can afford to go look and see what I really want to do. And he had this quote, Doc, that was, he said, uh, I have other mountains I want to climb. And he actually went and climbed Mount Everest twice along with many of the other peaks. And now he runs an adventure travel company. And I think it wasn't just me. It was a few other people that were mentored by him that kind of looked at our life. And so at 40, I said, you know what? I have other mountains I want to climb too. I decided to sell my business and go back to school to become an English teacher and a high school track coach. Neither of which happened. I ended up, you know, in the lucrative career podcast. So was that a sudden change of heart? Was it like you were completely happy with your career and then he left and sent you this letter and it changed everything on a dime? Or had you been feeling maybe for years that something needed to change? I felt like I wasn't spending enough time with my family. You know, I have twins that are now 24. So at that time, you know, I missed a lot of them growing up because I was building this financial planning business. But truthfully, I hadn't really examined a lot of that. I hadn't lived a very thoughtful life. I was more concerned about next week and next month and building the business. And that was really kind of a slap across the face that I need to be more intentional with what I did with this precious time that I'm here. Bobby, I'm interested in this idea of what makes us go from a lucrative, successful career and decide to switch. Talk to us a little bit about how you felt at Reuters. Did you think that that was your dream job when you first got it? And did your feelings change over time? Every job I had in TV news to a large degree was my dream job. I think a lot of my career I spent in shock that I was actually there. I have a lot of imposter syndrome, but I'm working through that. But I think all of my jobs were really wonderful. I was at Reuters for 15 years and at about year 12, some things had happened that I think a lot of moms can relate to. I had been working four days a week and had someone in the spot at all times, always covered. It was my responsibility. And that day home was really precious. But a new manager came in who was very positive on me and wanted to give me new opportunities, but he took away that day at home. And that really changed the dynamic for me because echoing what Joe said, I really suddenly wasn't seeing my family. That Friday was really important. And so about six months after I started working a full five days a week, and it's a very intense job. And while it is lucrative, it wasn't at a point where it was life-changing. I wasn't keeping that much when you really factor in the cost of working, especially in New York City, with we had childcare and all the other expenses that everyone faces. So I wasn't netting all that much, believe it or not. There's a lot of cost to working. And I thought about where my life was going, again, echoing what was going on with Joe. And I decided that I wanted to position myself to make a change when I was ready. And I went on something which I now call a mentor tour, asking people what I should do. And in the end, I came up with the idea that I wanted to start my own business that would have a more grassroots impact on people. I was talking a lot of macro concepts. I was interviewing every CEO you can imagine, and that's really exciting. But at the end of the day, I was coming home too exhausted to really 
engage with my family. All I wanted to do was get my son to bed. I didn't want to hang out with him. And that didn't make me happy. And so I came up with the idea of financial grown-up and the idea of reaching people and talking to them about the different life stages that they were going through. I wanted to do a documentary at first. My agent talked me out of that, told me to do a book. So I did a book and I wanted it to be personal and we can talk more about the book at another time. But long story short, that book became the off-ramp to start my own business, which has evolved into podcasting and speaking engagements and working with brands and other things. But it comes back to what Joe said. It came down to, this is my life. I only have so much time and I don't want to just be at home at eight or nine o'clock, which actually to me sounds pretty good, but I was mentally exhausted when I got home. And so it's not just the time, it's your where your head is. My job was very all-encompassing, very absorbing mentally. And Joe mentions this letter that was a wake-up call. For you, was it a walk in Central Park? I think I've heard you reference coming up with some of this idea of branding yourself during a specific walk. That is true. I do come up with a lot of concepts, including that one, while walking in Central Park. And I also did get a lot of ideas from this mentor tour, which I really encourage people to do. I try to meet up with people with coffee, a meal, or just going to their office. Just offer to come by their office so they don't have to make the effort to go out somewhere and make it easy for them. Even a phone call, ideally on camera, because we can do that these days. And people are happy to just chat with you for five, 10 minutes about ideas. And so many people gave me ideas. And one of them was the concept for the book in that someone said to me, if you want to write a book, what can you bring to the table that no one else can? What can you bring? You're now at Reuters. What can you do? And, and we came up together with the idea of interviewing these famous, super high achieving people in the business world about their personal money stories. And so that concept came from socializing the idea of what am I going to do? So I really recommend to people when you're thinking of making some kind of a pivot in your life, talk to people. I mean, this idea came from someone that had been the PR person for the company that my dad worked for when I was in college. And I used to come help her when they had events. So anyone that's been meaningful in your life that you can speak to that may give you wisdom, I highly recommend reaching out to them and, and just picking their brain for ideas. Julian, what do you think was the pivot point for you? What drove you away from hospitality? There were a couple of things. And so, and I would say a couple of pivots. The first one was really what drew me out of being a chef. I used to cook professionally for years. And after a while, it just felt like, no offense to people who do this, but to me, it just felt like a factory. And I felt like I really wanted to engage with people, you know, that there were other people that were developing social skills uh, that I just did not have an opportunity to develop because I was in my station and I was cooking. And while I was glad that I was creating things and I could see immediate results from what I was doing and people enjoyed it, I didn't actually get to see them enjoying it or converse with them or talk about it. And so uh, that was a big transition for me. And so I moved away from cooking professionally and into what they call the front of the house, the serving and the training. And then it just introduced a different challenge for me, which was that, hey, you know, what do people want to do when they're celebrating happy moments? They want to go out to a restaurant. They want to, you know, go and, and enjoy it with their family and their friends. And someone has to be there to ensure that they're creating a great experience for them. And so the challenge of being really good at what you do is that on the days where it matters most, you have to be there in order to create those opportunities for everyone else. And oftentimes that comes at the expense of you being able to do that for yourself. And so that was the second thing for me. I said, well, there's nowhere else to go. There's the back of the house, there's the front of the house. The only way to go is either to own the house, which was the big thing <laughs> for me. But even then I realized, yeah, well, the owner is there too. In fact, the owner was there before I got there and they were there when I left. And so that was really the beginning of me thinking about just 
what I wanted out of life. And I was still in my 20s. I did not know how to answer that question, but I knew that it had to start with me being mindful of the kind of control that I was willing to give up in exchange for money. And that led down the path of real estate and financial independence, and now even our blog, which is now a flourishing business. I want to focus down, Julian, with you on pivot points a little bit more. And we're going to put aside the father thing, because obviously having a child will fundamentally change your course. But there were two things I was interested in. One was this learning about and pursuing financial independence. And one was the major, I think you had a corporate restructuring, which brought this all to a point. Can you talk about both of those a little bit and how they affected your decision to pivot away from your job? Yes. You know, and this isn't to bash the company. I think there are lots of companies that that do this and, and go through uh, transitions, several transitions sometimes. But the big thing for me was, you know, because I'd been at that company for about 10 years, after a while, I had to stop and ask myself whether or not I believed what was being told to me. Every single time there was another reorg, this was the one that was going to fix everything. <laughs> this was the one that was, you know, we've never felt more aligned. We've never felt like we were in, you know, the position that we needed to be in order to accomplish these really lofty goals. And after the 10th year of hearing that, you know, you kind of just want people to be honest and say, hey, guys, you know, we think, at least just say we think this is the one or this is what we need, but we wouldn't even get that. And so I understood why they couldn't say that. But as the person that was on the receiving end and had to bear the brunt of accountability in an environment where clearly no one knew who was on first. And when you reach a certain point where no one knows who's on first, someone has to be blamed for something. Oftentimes, it's really just a matter of time before you're the last person that gets stuck holding the hot potato, right? And so now it's your turn to have to explain why you haven't been able to deliver on these lofty, impossible goals, despite the lack of alignment, despite the lack of resources, despite the changing landscape that the company never evolved to. And so I would have these conversations with myself, with my wife. We'd have these conversations with friends who explain the same sort of dynamic that are happening in that company and in their industry. And then you realize that you complain about it to yourselves, but you really don't have the freedom to do that, you know, through employee feedback. And then the cycle just repeats itself. You flame out, replace you with someone that was willing to take that job for 20 to 30% less. And the cycle just repeats itself. And so all of that was happening shortly after I had our child and to me and it was like very similar to uh, to what Bobby was referring to you know I had to have a very honest conversation with myself and say hey what kind of husband do you want to be what kind of father do you want to be and are you being that person so all of those forces combined and that's really what made me say ultimately I need to figure out a way to be in greater control of my life and my income did pursuing financial independence make that more or less likely for you want to leave your job more likely, 100%. It also made me a better employee by my standards because I was more productive and I could afford to tell the truth, which is what I thought they wanted to hear. <laughs> I was really wrong about that. But it made me more productive, I believe, because I didn't have the stress of trying to you know, navigate all of these other things to try to get ahead. I was really just more concerned about getting the job done and actually fulfilling the mission that I was tasked with. This existential crisis, Julian, that you're talking about, it's funny, when I was a financial planner, I saw this later in people's career when they were transitioning into retirement. They would go from feeling like the company, this whatever company I worked with, I'm this essential cog of a company. And as they got close to retirement, they start, they go through the different management regimes like you're talking about. And then they start to realize that maybe I'm not as important as I thought I was. And that really weighs on you. And then when you retire and you see somebody else steps into that, 
that job and the company continues, you see people on this 30-year, 40-year and out cycle working for somebody else. And it was over and over and over. A lot of people coping with who am I really if all of their identity was wrapped around this one job and that was it. I completely agree. You know, one of the things I would tell my wife is that my title, because oftentimes we get so wrapped up in the titles that we want and in the response that we would have. And I would tell her that, you know, my title will not be on my uh, tombstone, right? That's not what I want to be known for. And so I would always keep that in mind and use that to uh, prioritize my time and my energy. And what Joe is saying, and and Julian, you echoed, is really important. Our identities are very wrapped up in the professions that we choose. And that was something that I really struggled with because I had moved up the ranks in TV news and I was doing this global anchoring and I was writing a column for Reuters and I was representing Reuters, all these places. And I wondered, would anyone ever speak to me if I didn't have that affiliation? And you really start to think about what is your self-worth. And that's something that is very scary when you leave a job or when you make any kind of life pivot, career or otherwise, is who am I when you make a major change? And so that's something people really have to come to terms with ahead of time and know who they are. And I was pleasantly surprised that I still continue to get plenty of pitches from media and people still are willing to engage with me business-wise and take meetings with me for different projects that I have going on, even though I don't have that large corporate affiliation. Whitney, our group of panels here is talking about feeling afraid from leaving their prior affiliations. You left business school and started your own business and brand right away. How did you feel the confidence to do that without an affiliation or someone to anchor on? I think it's a very big myth that I felt confident to do that. I think even today, I still look at my life. I'm like, I have no idea what the heck I'm doing. But I mean, I'm just rolling with it. So one of the things that I had to remind myself of is that first and foremost, it's not my job's job to make me happy. My job that I was unhappy with was more internally. And that took a lot of courage to say, well, what would actually make me happy? What does sound more interesting? What would I rather be doing? And what I would rather be doing was working directly with people. I like to help people. I like to speak with people and educate people on personal finance. Maybe that's not your tax return and that's okay, but I can help them with other things. And so it wasn't a big leap. I'm actually incredibly risk averse. I hate risk. It freaks me out really, really bad. So because I didn't want to just dive into this new career, I set my full-time job job as my foundation to basically be my investor is how I viewed it. This full-time job was helping me pay the bills and grow my business on the side. Yes, I did start the business when I was in grad school, but it took me four years before I actually went full-time into what I'm doing today because I wanted to make sure I could still pay my bills while I'm testing the waters with this new business. So it was a very slow progression. And whenever people think it's like you just dove into this business, you're so not afraid of risk. Not true. Most of us are very afraid of risk. And I think you can hedge that and prove that your business concept will work first before you dive in, especially if you have obligations. Bobby, speak about that a little bit. How long was it between coming up with the idea and brand of Financial Grown Up to the time you left Reuters? How much time was in between? It was over three years. And I think there's a lot of myth about that. I had a friend about three months after my book came out, came to me and she said, I can't believe what you've done in three months. She said, you're in all these magazines, (laughs) you're interviewed all these places. It's amazing. How did you do this? And just, you know, 12 weeks since your book came out. And I, I wanted to hang up the phone on her. I was so angry at her at the moment because here I'd been for three years. I mean, the work is real. I spent so many nights. There's a Whole Foods across the street and they have really bright lights and they have lots of outlets and they have big formica tables and they're open till 11 o'clock most nights and you can buy just a water and go up there and you can sit there and it's right across 
across the street so I could come back and forth, do bedtime with my son. And I sat there so sad, so many weeknights, a lot of Saturday nights, sitting alone, writing that book in solitude. And it's very lonely and it's a lot of work. And there's a lot of stuff that people don't see. I really reconfigured my life for three works to do this almost full-time side hustle, putting together the branding and this book. So it's a big off-ramp. It's no joke. Joe, I'd like to contrast Bobby's experience to yours. You had a finite end, right? You sold your certified financial practice and then it was done. Did you have a moment of pause afterwards where you said, oh my God, what have I done? Not really. I actually didn't. And maybe that's because part of my contract when I sold it and because it was a practice, the gentleman I sold it to, I had to sign on for a year of helping the transition. Maybe so during that time going, sometimes recommending courses of action that I'm no longer the backstop. I had to have the new guy check off everything that I was telling my client to do for the first time. That was kind of hard to swallow. It actually kind of helped push me out the door, frankly. I realized I'm not that great as an employee. I'm a horrible employee. I'm that guy. What's that joke? Somebody that'll work 70 hours for myself to avoid working 40 hours for somebody else. That is totally me. Julian, so much of how we make transitions in life really depends on the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. And I remember reading that you had a very well-defined narrative of who you are in the hospitality industry, right? You had this narrative, you had this elevator pitch down. How did that have to change when you left your job? Yeah, no, I absolutely did. And, you know, it derived from, you know, some counsel that I got from a, a senior executive because it was so important to, you know, describe yourself in a way that was appealing and almost romantic. That changed uh, after I left, but it didn't just automatically go away. And I'll tell you, I've been away from that job for almost two years now. And every now and then I may see like a commercial or the brand or something like that. And I still identify with it. My wife still works for that company. That's where we met. And I still use uh, the word we when I'm thinking or talking about it. Right. So it takes time. The story I didn't have as much of a challenge uh, revamping because to Whitney's point and to Bobby's point, the brand Rich and Regular is something that we've been thinking about two years before we'd ever published anything on the internet. We've been thinking about the tone and the sort of chord that we wanted to hit and how we wanted to position that message for years before we decided to uh, share anything. And so we've been slowly building what we wanted to represent and who we wanted to speak to in the background. And even now, though, it's been two years since we've launched, we're still sort of trying to nail down what that elevator pitch was. But the point is, it's not something that happened immediately, but I didn't have as much of a challenge replacing that story because I had a two-year sort of backstory to help build it. Whitney, from what I can tell, people who reinvent themselves successfully, it seems like their narrative and their brand match really well. And you were talking about, especially when you first started your business, that sense of imposter syndrome, right? So your own personal narrative was telling you, maybe I'm not good enough. On the other hand, your brand is, and I'm sure was, fairly confident. How has that changed over the years, the duality between that kind of inner monologue or narrative you have and how your brand has developed over time? It is kind of this tricky thing with the imposter syndrome of, here's my narrative, but here's my brand and my persona. For me, it was an easy commingle because I try to be as authentic as possible. So when I'm putting out my brand and everything that I do, it's directly a reflection of me. I think that's one of the best things that you can do to take that pressure off of yourself. The other thing too was I noticed that there were a lot of 
overly professional people in the personal finance industry, where it was almost this thing where you feel like you have to be so professional and so polished all the time. And that just wasn't who I was. And so I kind of felt this pressure between, do I need to be this person that could be up in front of Goldman Sachs and look the part, or do I need to be this person that's very approachable and, you know, wears t-shirts and jeans when they do public presentations. And ultimately, I think that we all have to make that decision of how do you want to show up with your brand and with your narrative. But I think being who you are, I know that sounds so cheesy. It's like the simplest advice ever, but really leaning into who the heck are you and how do you show up and how do you feel most confident? That will be reflective of your brand. And I think the worst thing people can do is put out a brand. Maybe it's your resume. Your resume is a direct reflection of your personal brand too. You put out a resume even that doesn't reflect who you are. And when people finally meet you, they're like, oh, I'm kind of disappointed. I thought you were going to be this different person. And so I think it's an important concept to really pay attention to your personal brand that you're putting out into the world, whether it's your social media posts, whatever the heck narrative you're putting out there, it needs to be a direct reflection of who you are, in my opinion. Joe, you seem to me to be a jack of all trades. Is it okay for your narrative to change from time to time? I mean, is that all right? I think as long as your inner truth is consistent, you know, if your values stay consistent, I think you're fine there. Certainly my narrative has changed from a guy that represented a big company, American Express, for a number of years in the media to some guy who's with this little podcast out of my mom's basement. So that stuff can all change. But if who I am is changing, I think your audience sees right through that. Who was it that said, there's this great quote I like, and I've heard it attributed to different people. And it's, you know, I I don't lie because I don't have a good enough memory. And I think that your audience hears it when you lie. Even if, you know, you try to cover it up, you're going to get caught in it sooner or later. So the best policy is just continually be who you are. And it's funny because I feel very fortunate. When I was with American Express, I had extensive media training. And even with the big companies, that's what they taught us in media training was that people smell it. When you're being inauthentic, I hate the word authentic, but you know what I'm talking about. When you're not being you, people smell it and then they associate it with corporate. And the big thing this big corporate company taught me was don't try to be big corporate, try to be you. And then people will identify that with American Express at the time. So even the big companies kind of get that message. So hopping on what Joe said, I'm going to give everybody a little behind the scenes about Joe and I and how we came to do a podcast together. I told Joe famously soon after we met, he had suggested I do a podcast at some point and I told him I would never do a podcast. Absolutely never. My plan at the time, I had written How to Be a Financial Grown-Up and I was doing a lot of speaking. In fact, this conversation happened. Joe was covering a conference. I was the MC, and uh, he had interviewed me for that and he suggested that's what I do rather than write another book. And I, of course, was going to write another book, which has not happened yet, but that's it's going to happen. And I went on to do a lot of speaking and brand work and so on. But at the end of the day, Joe came to me about almost a year ago now with an opportunity that I literally couldn't turn down and the opportunity to work with someone that knows so much about the field and was going to really teach me as he has. And I love the show that we do together. That's something in a million years I never predicted when I said I'm going to write a book and leave Reuters to be a full-time author and mom doing a podcast with Joe Salcihai was not something I even could have possibly imagined. One of, if not the best things that I've had the opportunity to, to do. So it's so important that people just be open-minded, have a plan, but definitely keep pivoting. You don't know what opportunities will come your way. You worry about people, whether they'll call you when you don't have the tie to a corporate brand, but it's amazing how many people you didn't know and the opportunities you didn't know even could potentially exist could come your way if you're open to it. By the way, I work more hours than I ever did in any corporate job. There are no boundaries, which is something I'm working on, but I also feel I have infinite earning power as opposed to having a salary. I was in a union 
union job, even though it looks glamorous on the outside, at the end of the day, I was in a union job for a corporation, just like so many people. And there are limits to what you can earn in that kind of job. I am very proud that in the two calendar years that I've had since leaving Reuters, both years I've earned more than I earned at Reuters. And I've netted significantly more because I'm home with my son and don't pay for childcare, which is huge. A lot of moms and dads can appreciate that. So the sky's the limit. You have to just see what, what works for you, but amazing opportunities can come your way. Not to mention the potential improvement in your life because you get to control your time. Even though you work a lot, you're doing what you want to do. So Bobby, I had a follow-up question about you mentioned very quickly that you didn't want to do a podcast. Was there a reason why? Was there something about the narrative of being a podcaster that you weren't interested in? I'll tell you because I, I like control and, and a book you can control, a book you write it, you can put it down and you can go do another one in four years. And I was very concerned that I'd be focused on my family. And in podcasting, the truth is it's a lot of work. And if you want to do it well, it has to be consistent. It has to be of high quality. And I certainly am a stickler when it comes to quality. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to partner with Joe is because I know he is as well. And he believes in a well-produced podcast and there is a difference. I knew the level podcast that I was going to do had to be something I was really committed to. And I wasn't really ready to make that kind of commitment. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. 
And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Julian, let's talk about this idea of control a little bit. I'm looking at the six people who are together on this podcast today. And what I see is a bunch of people who continuously reinvent themselves. And part of the reason is, is we're all willing to throw ourselves out there and feel that loss of control of doing something new. Is there anything wrong with taking the other tact? I mean, is there something wrong with stagnation, finding something you're good at it and doing it and just sitting in that space? Not at all. You know, I came from that space, right? Uh, and it was quite comfortable. And, you know, there are benefits to that. It's consistent. Uh, you know exactly sort of what to expect. And for me, it just kind of got boring after a while. And, and, you know, to Bobby's point about there not being any ceilings in terms of income, I find that very intriguing. And I remember days where I would spend weeks working on a PowerPoint deck or something just to sort of push it through the pipes of a company only for it to just sort of get ignored, right? Or I'd spend an entire weekend trying to perfect a presentation or a slot in a presentation that I would have only for it to get scratched because someone was a bit verbose in the meeting, right? And so I would think about, you know, the sort of exchange that I made, you know, like the impact that that had on my weekend and my ability to build relationships or strengthen relationships with the people in my life. And after a while, it just got boring or frustrating for me. But in terms of not taking that route, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't believe everyone is born with that sort of fearless or that desire to have a higher degree of control. I don't know if I was born with it or not, but I don't think there's anything wrong with not having it either. But I will also say, if you want more out of life, you at least have to be open to the fact that you're going to have to change something about the place that you are, right? You can't assume that you're going to get to where you want to be without experiencing some degree of conflict or friction. And you have to sort of be willing to accept that and do the work in order to uh, reconcile whatever's needed to get to where you want to go. I'd like to transition a little bit of a different direction. I want to run through the whole panel here and I'm going to start with Whitney. Tell us what you do professionally. What do you feel are the aspects of your job and how do you make money? Not how much you make, but how do you make money? What do you do professionally? So professionally, I work as a financial coach, which means I work directly with individuals one-on-one to help them get their finances in order. Mostly the basics, budgeting, paying off debt, uh, side hustling, building up a savings account, getting yourself to a place where you have a really good financial foundation to build on. So that's what I do quite a bit of. That's a big portion of my time. The podcast is another big portion of my time. The overarching business theme is how do I educate and reach more people? And so the podcast is a really great way to spread the personal finance message, show what people are doing that's really interesting and unique so that we can get inspired to take different actions. I think when we see that things can be possible, then we can start to visualize that for our our own lives. And so that's what the podcast does. And then in addition to that, there's lots of paid courses that I offer. And so these are just different lengths. Some are really short, some are a little bit more in depth, helping people get to the point where they have a good financial foundation. So my whole business is all based on that premise of build a house on a good foundation and everything else will work out okay. Joe, list out for us your professional activities and how you make money. 
I make podcasts. I'm involved with uh, nine podcasts a week and then the FinCon podcast on top of that. I'm the host of, I help Paula Pant with her show. I got to be on the What's Up Next podcast this week as well. So there's the pinnacle of my career. But you know, I see myself as in the business of financial literacy, even though people say that we mess around. But I strongly believe in the science of play, that people learn more when they don't think they're learning anything. I certainly do. And I think other people do as well. So I actually kind of feel bad when people like, I wish they'd stop messing around on the Stacking Benjamin show or on Money with Friends because I think that the average person out there doesn't want to have the deep conversation. You know, they're afraid of the deep conversation and having the light conversation is a way to get them down that slippery slope toward us. But I make money through podcasting and it's usually based on what's called a CPM basis. I like that model. But so CPM is, is uh, Milu is thousand and it means for every thousand listeners that I get, sponsors of our show pay us. The reason I like that relationship is because for me, if I make a better podcast, more people are going to listen and then that drives up my income. I really like that carrot for me. If I create something that more people want, then sponsors will pay me more money. And certainly I have to then make sure that those sponsorships fit things that I think are good for our listeners. But that is, I think, 99% of the way I make money right now. Bobby, list off your professional activities and how you make money. So in addition to partnering with Joe Salcihai on Money with Friends, which is CPM, as, as he describes very accurately, and that show, by the way, goes out six days a week now. So that is no small thing. I also have my own podcast, Financial Grown Up. That is part of an ecosystem of the Financial Grown Up brand. And so that has the book, How to Be a Financial Grown Up, and the book that will be out, I am determined, in spring of 2021 called Raising Financial Grown Ups, which I hope to get an advance for soon. But my primary income source, to be honest with you, is doing a lot of what I did at Reuters, but in a different way. And that is a partnership content. It's sponsored content. I work with brands. So you'll see me, for example, pop up on CNBC. Ironically, we were talking earlier, my first job there. I'm still there. I work with the NBC brand studio with different clients. We've worked right now. You'll see spots for JP Morgan on Squawk Box on Wednesdays. We film them at the NASDAQ. I've worked with them on other big brands like Synchrony, which is the old GE Capital and a number of other brands. So that's my primary income stream. I want to diversify it, which is part of the reason that I went into business with someone that knows what they're doing about podcasts. And I think it's important when you go into business, if you have the opportunity to partner with somebody that understands not just in Joe's case, how to make a podcast, but how to make a podcast that is an income because there's a big difference. And I think it's important that people understand that. And I also, frankly, still do freelance. I do freelance anchoring. So you'll see me pop up on local news around the country and I do a little bit of freelance writing, but that is something that's not a real focus of mine, but that as well. And I do a little bit of corporate writing behind the scenes of working with companies as a ghostwriter, but that's also very minimal right now. I'm trying to move away from that. But as you know, when when an opportunity, aka the right financial reward comes up, you'll obviously work with people as a ghostwriter on occasion. Julian, do you consider yourself a serial entrepreneur? Talk about what your professional activities are, how you make money. Uh, I don't know about serial entrepreneur. Uh, this uh, recent regular is really only the second business that I've ever started behind our little humble real estate empire. But I, I do consider myself a digital entrepreneur. I'm a content creator. We make money primarily right now through speaking engagements. We have quite a few of those coming up over the next six months. We are also partnering with a few brands to create other digital content that speaks uh, to the heart of, let's say, a target audience that they have trouble reaching that falls squarely within our niche. 
stage. And we oftentimes find ourselves consulting to some of those companies to help them sharpen some of their marketing activities. We're really just leveraging our professional experience. And so it's a matter of saying, hey, these are things that I did for a company where I had a income ceiling and I stepped out on faith and now we're doing that and doing it for, for ourselves. Whitney, how do you see yourself reinventing yourself in the future? And uh, specifically, how will you deal with imposter syndrome in the future? It's always going to be there, my friend. It's never going to go away. I've just learned that you just have to deal with the imposter syndrome. But it's a really good conversation because I'm currently in the process of reinvention. Coaching is incredible and I still enjoy it, but it's getting to the point where I'm focusing on scale. How do you reach more people? How do you change more people's lives? And so one of the areas that I am currently reinventing myself in is really solidifying myself as a public speaker. And so that's something that I'm currently going through. And how do you make that transition just so you guys can kind of see what I'm actually doing there. I am being very, very strategic about the content I'm putting out there. I'm talking more about the speaking engagements that I've done. I'm talking more about people's feedback from the speaking engagements. I'm doing a really good job of putting that message out into the world so that that's what people remember me for. And I think if you curate the message that you're putting out into the world, the narrative, I think it's really quite easy to reinvent yourself. People will naturally gravitate and go with the flow if you put out the right messages. And so that's currently what I'm doing. And then it's putting a lot of my resources into outreach and connecting with people that do hire speakers. Kind of like fake it like until you make it, except you're not faking it, but you're building that as part of who you are. And I found that with public speaking, at least it's like stand-up comedy. You've got to just keep doing it over and over and yes. over again. And that's how you get good at it. Joe, so tell me, podcasting, is there a future in video? Is there a future in some other medium? How will you reinvent yourself in the future? I have a face for radio, Doc. So <laughs> I resist video and you know it's coming because it's less about the channel and more about being everywhere. Like, you know, I mean, Joe Rogan is known as a podcaster to a lot of people, but sometimes when he has great videos on, his YouTube channel blows up. So it's not about Joe Rogan being one channel and I have to kind of look at myself that way and find our audience wherever they are. I've hired some coaches recently to talk about with me about where my biggest opportunities are. And I believe in having smart people in my corner that aren't me and aren't emotionally invested. And what I've found is that I need to spend more time on my unique talents that only I can do. So the creative aspects of the show, sharpening the show and building out a better team behind me so that uh, a lot of the day-to-day -day aspects of booking the guest and figuring out structurally what we're going to do, somebody else can take all that. So I'm really working behind the scenes with my team right now so I can focus more on the creative side. Bobby, you ever get tired of reinventing yourself? Does it ever get exhausting? I mean, I just listen to the breath of your professional <laughs> experience and think, man, I'm exhausted just listening to a resume. You ever feel like, boy, maybe I can stop reinventing myself a little bit? Yes. The answer is yes, I am exhausted. And I go through that and I don't know what to cut because right now, truthfully, as I said, the primary source of income is working with brands. And I absolutely love it. I've been able to work with such great brands. I think my favorite thing is the podcasting. I think that my future is probably, I love the fact that, and Joe talks about this, that that's something we can control. If we make a better podcast, more people come, we make more money and we have control over that product. And I love that. Rather than when you work with brands, it's great. But if they don't re-up or if the campaign just runs its natural course, then that's over. 
right? And the same thing with freelancing. But when you build a business, there's something that you really own and that is tangible. And I love that idea. I do think my future is with podcasting, but very much also, I love the Financial Grown-Up brand in that this new book, Raising Financial Grown-Ups, that I'm working on is very close to my heart. I'm going through this. I have two adult stepchildren that I'm very proud of, and we're working on making them financial grown-ups. And I have a 12-year-old as well. So I really want to be talking a lot in the parenting space and how we get the next generation to be, as I say, financial grownups, however you define that. And so that's where I see my next pivot is really becoming an advocate for that cause within the context of still doing the podcast. That's what I'd like to be my sort of next focus. Yeah, I was going to say, and Bobby, be honest here. Every time you cut something for your schedule, do two more things jump into its place? Yes. My final day at Reuters, I told my producer that I was going to be doing yoga and I would have plenty of time to have lunch with her. And I was just going to write another book in about three or four years and I was going to be good. And that was it. Maybe do a little speaking engagements, but I'm going to be a mom full time and just write a book every three to four years. And she laughed and she said, you're going to be too busy to have lunch with me. And she was right. So you know me already. So Julian, broaden it out for us a little bit. Talk about both you and Kirsten and Rich and Regular as a brand. How do you think you'll be reinventing yourself in the future? So we are admittedly well on the path of reinvention. And so I think we'll have to start describing ourselves as writer, uh, you know, a bit more often going forward and maybe even media personality. I think uh, we've had such an amazing and fun ride over the last couple of years and uh, we enjoy doing what we're doing. We're very fortunate and uh, it's wonderful. It's creative. Uh, it also has the potential to be very lucrative, for being honest. And so uh, we're happy about the work that we're doing and that uh, we're looking forward to helping as many people as possible. But I would say specifically talking to people or communities that aren't necessarily being spoken to right now. And so this idea that we can act as a bridge to uh, take a certain message that isn't quite reaching certain neighborhoods, we're really excited about that. Shifting the message a little bit along the way, but we know how to do that because we do that every single day uh, in our conversations. It's just a matter of amplifying that message. So I'd like to switch the lens of this conversation from the guests now. We've been talking about your lives quite a bit and your reinvention. Let's think about the audience who's listening to this. I'd like for each of you to share what should be going through people's minds and apply the lessons that you've learned to their lives. So we all are all trying to have this narrative that's running through our head and we're trying to figure out what to do with our lives. We're trying to find ourselves. And you guys have all done a really good job of finding yourselves and reinventing yourselves. What advice would you give to somebody who's listening this. Yeah, I love this question. I think it's really an important one. And the biggest piece of advice I can give for people is to take the pressure off of yourself by taste testing different ideas. So what this means is if you've always had this dream of starting whatever business, you want to open a coffee shop, what's the smallest scale coffee shop version that you can put out into the world that's not going to break the bank that you can test and see if you actually truly enjoy that? I think a lot of times we fall in love with different narratives, even though that's really not for us. But by taste testing things, it gives yourself permission to try and then say, no, that wasn't for me. Or yes, I love this. I should do this more. But I think that's one of the biggest things. And maybe for somebody listening, that taste test version is renting your favorite condo downtown and seeing if that lifestyle is actually what you truly love. It allows you to have that ability to play around without committing fully into something. So I think taste testing is the biggest thing I can give for people is just go out there and try different things and don't feel bad if you don't love it. That's okay. But that's what it's all about. I just want to first of all say ditto to what Whitney said. And I want to add on to that, the idea that 
taste testing, it's important to keep your day job for a while. I spent three years before I left Reuters and it was a very deliberate three years. And I think it was pretty obvious to people that I was gearing up to leave by what was going on, but take the time. And also I got some great advice when I went on this mentor tour and that was to appreciate what you do have at your corporate job because there are a lot of resources there that you can use. And I'm not talking about anything you know illegal. I'm not talking about stealing office supplies. I'm just saying, you know, pay attention. They might pay for educational courses that you can learn or even just look at the person near you and learn, you know, I learned how to do some technical stuff behind the scenes that helps me now as a podcaster because I record by myself. I don't have an engineer with me, even though I have an editor putting it together. So take the time, see what skills could you learn in the job that you are in right now that you can then take with you to the next business, whether it's learning from a colleague or formal education that they'll pay for. I love both of those pieces of advice. One from Whitney, because so many people, they jump off into the deep end way too early and they find out two or three years into it that they don't actually like it. Like running a restaurant, start with a food truck first as an example, right? And then this idea of splitting the difference I think the world that we all should be playing with somehow, some way is we're always side hustling towards something where we're going to pivot to because it's not if, but when probably our world will change and the rug will get pulled out from underneath you. It's just the world we live in now. Joe, you've done a lot of pivoting. I'm very curious what your unique insight is on this question of how should someone be going about reinventing their lives? First, Paul, is this idea of intentional living and something I definitely wasn't doing before that letter from my mentor that made me sell my financial planning practice and realizing that what Julian said earlier about the corporate mission and where do you sit in the corporate mission, the new people come around. Just this idea, if you don't have a plan for your life, somebody else always will. And you can decide if you're feeding yourself or are you feeding somebody else? But even bigger than that, once you realize that I need to have a plan, the absence of a plan is still a plan. It's this idea that a mentor of mine told me a long time ago about the power of being five. Once you're in control, become a five-year-old. Like when we were five, when I was five, I wanted to be either a firefighter, the milkman, or the president of the United States. And then when I was 35, I wanted a 5% incremental raise and maybe reach the next little spot on the ladder. <laughs> like, like it all goes away. And all of a sudden we go away from these big audacious goals and we go down to these little tiny things. I think if we go back to being five with our plan, I think there's a lot more power that we can exude than we think we have. I love that answer. Julian, do you have any additional thoughts on the question? I do. I have two. Uh, one is really just a reflection of an article that I read recently. It was something to the effect of most things that you're worrying about will likely never happen. And I have to remind myself of that. We go through so much work, you know, sort of talking ourselves out of these things. But the reality is most of the things that we are so deeply afraid of will likely never happen. And there's so much value if you just sort of get over that first step and walk into something, even if it's unknown. Like I love when Ricky admitted that she still doesn't quite have it together because that's true. And I'm sure many of the people that, that follow her would never assume that because she's so well put together. But I don't think any of us do, right? We're still sort of figuring it out. But the second piece I would say is, and this is a bit personal, but keep in mind that your family and your friends want nothing but the best for you. And sometimes that manifests itself in concern, which means that they 
may not necessarily support any of the risky activities that you are promoting. You know, they just want to make sure that you're okay, that your kids are okay. And if your job, as it is today, enables that, they're not necessarily going to be open to you trying to rock that boat. You can't digest that as, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. You just have to respect your family for who they are, where they are, and the fact that they love you and they want nothing more than for you to be happy. And so oftentimes we can talk ourselves out of things because someone that we love may not necessarily be as enthusiastic about this new idea that you have. And so I just wanted to make sure that I put that out there. Oh, I was just going to say that's so good. I was just like thinking about how impactful that is for all of us to just remember that our loved ones, we think they have our best interest in mind and they do, but they know you as you are. And so I think that's really impactful. I really appreciated that perspective. I love the statement you just said, Whitney, is they know you as you are. And in order to reinvent yourself, you have to become somebody different. That's the big discovery that I made in my own personal reinvention is you're not going to get to where you're going to go like Julian said a while ago by being the same person you are now. So you're going to have to reinvent yourself along the way. And it doesn't happen overnight. It can take three years like Bobby's talking about. So let's talk about what is up next. It's apropos for this particular podcast. Where are you guys going next? And figure out what What's up next in your life? What maybe could be happening in the future that isn't necessarily on the radar right now? Uh, we are really excited about getting into video. And so we think that it's such a great medium to connect with people, for people to feel like they are right there with you. And so uh, we're working on a number of different projects. We have more ideas than we have funding at this point. And so we're in the process of trying to find a better balance there. But we're really excited about telling better, deeper stories and sort of tapping into the emotional struggles that people have get in the way of them achieving their financial dreams. I'm sure YouTube will play a role in it, but I'm no expert in that area. So, you know, I'm still trying to figure out exactly all of the different places that it needs to live. But yeah, it'll likely live uh, to some degree on YouTube as well. Uh, you can find us at uh, Rich and Regular. We're at all, on all social media platforms and at richandregular.com. Let's switch over to Bobby. Where can we find you and what is up next for you? So what's up next with me is I am very excited about the growth of the Money with Friends podcast. And the website for that is moneywithfriendspodcast.com. Our social channels are Money Friends Pod on both Instagram and on Twitter. We do a lot of fun Instagram polls and quizzes that we integrate in the show. So if you participate, you might get a shout out, which is really fun. For me personally, I am excited about my next book, Raising Financial Grownups. I hope to have the proposal done imminently, like in the next few days. And I hope it will be on bookshelves and online for purchase by spring of 2021. But you can read about it on my website at bobbyrebel.com. And all my socials are bobbyrebel on Instagram. It's bobbyrebel on the number one. Joe, same for you. Where can we find you and what's up next for you? Believe it or not, you can find me at Money With Friends as well alongside Bobby. And I think, think she already shared that. You can also find me at uh, the Stacking Benjamin Show every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, where people are listening here to this. What's up next for me? I am also working on a book. We have a great agent and we're finishing up the sample chapters. I have a fantastic co-author, a woman named Emily Guy Birkin, who I think a lot of us in the community know. And we're having a lot of fun. It obviously wouldn't be a Stacking Benjamin's book if it didn't have a lot of comedy. So Emily and I sit and laugh and the more we crack ourselves up, I think the better it's going to be. 
Whitney, bring this home for us. Uh, where can we find you and what is up next? Where I'm going next is mostly focusing on the podcast, getting it to be a better show. We're nearing 1 million downloads, which blows my freaking mind. It's crazy to think that that many people have listened to the show and creepy at the same time. So that's one of the, the big pieces is constantly trying to evolve my craft. How do I get better at podcasting? How do I continue to grow? How do I reach more people? We already talked a little bit about speaking, but one of the pieces that I think will be really fun for people people is I am doing a series in the next couple of months all about adulting. And what this means is how do you go from creating a budget? How do you navigate credit? How do you navigate all these really tough topics? And so my goal is to bring a really fun angle and teach people some very practical things. And that will be on the podcast and on YouTube. So watch out, Julian. I'm, I'm trying to do the video too, man. <laughs> so that's where I'm at, where everybody can find me, the Money Nerds podcast. WhitneyHanson.com is probably where I hang out the most. And on Instagram, I'm at Whitney underscore Hanson underscore co, which annoys me, but that's where I'm at. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we'd like to thank Julian from Rich and Regular, Bobby Rebel, Joe Salcihai, and Whitney Hanson. If you would like to get updates on what Doc and I are thinking up next, you can text the word NEXT to 345-345 so you can get notified of free giveaways, opportunities to engage with the What's Up Next podcast, and maybe even be a guest on the podcast. We're adding consistent content to our Facebook group, and you can get access by texting the word NEXT to the number 345-345. That's a wrap. Uh, how many times have you guys recorded uh, using the wrong microphone uh, podcast? Uh, early on, a crap load. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. Never tell. Well, no. And I also had the, did you guys ever have the Yeti mic? Mm -hmm. No. You know, and the Yeti mic kind of stands up like this. Yeah. And, and you talk into the side. I, I talked into the top for like the first four months and I'm like, this mic sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and then I realized that you had to talk through like this part. The side, yeah. Yeah. And uh, there, it was like a miracle. Like the heavens opened up. Yeah. <laughs> Good audio, finally. Whitney, It's always here. tricky with guests. You got to make sure they actually have microphones oh, and stuff. Stop talking about Whitney. She's here. She's here. <laughs> we got to be quiet, everybody. Ah! Everybody, yeah. Watch out. <laughs> yeah. Does anyone have a hard stop time? Mm -mm. Okay. So we'll keep you here for two hours. Great. <laughs> two or three. Perfect. So. I'm kidding. Yeah. We won't go that long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> separating me from my avocado toast. Serious. Yeah. I'm serious. So <laughs> <laughs> he's not kidding. He actually is going to make an avocado toast afterwards. <laughs> just all of the millennial things. I just <laughs> best. Yes. Boxes. Get your fancy latte as well. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm sitting on a chair that is way too high for my desk. So if I'm like hunched over and look funny, I'm standing, I'm like way too far from my mic and everything. So you're going to see my head moving around all the time. So. <laughs> like a boxer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> New hobby. <laughs> yeah. My, my wife stole the chair that goes with this desk. I'm sitting in my son's room at a children's size desk because I don't have an office, but this is how I record. I'm and in the my, kitchen. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. Can, I can see that. I'm right in there. New York city in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, that, that, I mean, in New York city, desks. I was about to say in New York city, <laughs> that might be the kitchen, the bedroom and the bathroom all in the same, all in the same place. Sometimes. Yeah. Do you want us to mute in between? If you hear like a train going by or a bus or a dog barking or the toilet flushing, all that kind of stuff, we'd like to mute out. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, but then you'll know where I'm sitting. 
Yes, exactly. <laughs> with, with, with your throne, right? <laughs> Joe, keep it contained, man. Come on. <laughs> Nobody said we had to be wearing pants. Yeah. True. As long as we don't talk about it, I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact for Whitney, she's a potato lover. I am actually. <laughs> it just, it's just in your DNA. You can't help it. That's right. You had this elevator pitch down. How did that have to change when you left your job? Oh, man, you're giving me nightmares just thinking about it. I started hearing it as you were saying it. I was like, oh, he's going there. <laughs> um, so what's funny is I figured out uh, the two mistakes that we've made, Doc. So uh, Joe had two, two things that it's like, he doesn't want to have deep conversations because uh, that's all we do is have deep conversations. We're doing it wrong. <laughs> I'll and, let you guys have it. You can have it. <laughs> I just, I just kept on wanting to call him rock and roll the whole time. Yeah, I'm the like, whole time. So rock and roll. Cause you know, I'm always looking at the names up here on my screen. I'm like, so rock and roll. What do you make of that? <laughs> and, Someday and, I'll figure that out. <laughs> and Bobby said that wanted to find a partner up with somebody who knows what they're doing. That's yeah. the mistake that we made, Doc, we don't know what we're doing. And neither one of us does. Neither one of us. If we had just found one person who knew what they were doing. It's the blind leading the blind. Where we're off I in the ditch. Your follow -up, I thought your follow-up poll was going to be, so then why the hell Joe? <laughs> <laughs> I know I did too, actually. Uh, <laughs> uh, now Kirsten can't fight me on it. I'm going to say that everyone on the yeah. That's right. This is what we should do. So now we got to go pitch a yeah. pitch a gotcha. <laughs> I was about to say, and Julian's like, I'm going to be the producer, but Kirsten, you can't be the producer. Joint <laughs> <laughs> like, ownership, 50 50 partnerships. But if Julian wants so. to do all our video, I am gay. <laughs> <laughs> what if, yeah, so they, so Bobby and Joe can be talking, and then it could just be Julian and Kirsten sitting across from each other. <laughs> it's like He's trying to move their mouth and sync with us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can combine Julian's face with you, with your voice, and that's you how you can have a face. That? Yeah, <laughs> I'll take his voice over mine any day, though. Yeah, and, and you also have to realize that no matter how hard you try, those are going to suck. I mean, they're going to be horrible. <laughs> yes, I'm still begging Joe to delete my first few episodes of our first joint <laughs> podcast. It was so bad. It was so bad, and he's so kind. Oh, and she's paused. That's yeah. a good time to pause, though. Yeah. Joe, we need to do this. Let's do a green screen. We'll set up the basement and just have you do the show from the basement. Come on. And then we'll hire somebody to come in with, like, rollers and everything, the robe with the cat, and come down and be like, Joe, what are you doing down here? I'm here to think, though, if you and Julian want to do that. Ju Julian can be in the rollers. In the rollers. In the hair oh, roller. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, bathrobe it'll be great with the cat he'll be carrying a cat oh, right petting okay. <laughs> tech moves fast so keep pace with the daily crunch podcast from TechCrunch. with new episodes every day this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups new tech regulations and more Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.